He went out, trembling all over from a sort of wild, hysterical sensation, in which there was an element of insufferable rapture. Yet he was gloomy and terribly tired. His face was twisted as after a fit. His fatigue increased rapidly. Any shock, any irritating sensation stimulated and revived his energies at once, but his strength failed as quickly when the stimulus was removed. Zamyatov, left alone, sat for a long time in the same place, plunged in thought. Raskolnikov had unwittingly worked a revolution in his brain on a certain point, and had made up his mind for him conclusively. Ilya Petrovitch is a blockhead, he decided. Raskolnikov had hardly opened the door of the restaurant when he stumbled against Razumihin on the steps. They did not see each other till they almost knocked against each other. For a moment they stood looking each other up and down. Razumihin was greatly astounded. Then anger, real anger, gleamed fiercely in his eyes. "'So, here you are,' he shouted at the top of his voice. "'You ran away from your bed, and here I've been looking for you under the sofa. "'We went up to the garret. I almost beat Nastasia on your account. "'And here he is after all. "'Rodia, what is the meaning of it? Tell me the whole truth. Confess. Do you hear?' "'It means that I'm sick to death of you all, and I want to be alone.' Raskolnikov answered calmly. Alone, when you are not able to walk, when your face is as white as a sheet and you are gasping for breath? Idiot! What have you been doing in the Palais de Cristal? Own up at once. Let me go, said Raskolnikov, and tried to pass him. This was too much for Razumihin. He gripped him firmly by the shoulder. Let you go? You dare tell me to let you go? Do you know what I'll do with you directly? I'll pick you up, tie you up in a bundle, carry you home under my arm, and lock you up. Listen, Razumihin, Raskolnikov began quietly, apparently calm. Can't you see that I don't want your benevolence? A strange desire you have to shower benefits on a man who curses them who feels them a burden, in fact. Why did you seek me out at the beginning of my illness? Maybe I was very glad to die. Didn't I tell you plainly enough today that you were torturing me, that I was sick of you? You seem to want to torture people. I assure you that all that is seriously hindering my recovery, because it's continually irritating me. You saw Zosimov went away just now to avoid irritating me. You leave me alone, too, for goodness' sake. What right have you, indeed, to keep me by force? Don't you see that I am in possession of all my faculties now? How, how can I persuade you not to persecute me with your kindness? I may be ungrateful, I may be mean. Only let me be, for God's sake, let me be— let me be, let me be. He began calmly, gloating beforehand over the venomous phrases he was about to utter, but finished, panting for breath, in a frenzy, 
as he had been with Lucian. Razumihin stood a moment, thought, and let his hand drop. Well, go to hell, then, he said gently and thoughtfully. Stay, he roared, as Raskolnikov was about to move. Listen to me. Let me tell you that you are all a set of babbling, posing idiots. If you've any little trouble, then you brood over it like a hen over an egg. And you are plagiarists even in that. There isn't a sign of independent life in you. You are made of spermaceti ointment, and you've lymph in your veins instead of blood. I don't believe in any one of you. In any circumstance, the first thing for all of you is to be unlike a human being. Stop, he cried, with redoubled fury, noticing that Raskolnikov was again making a movement. Hear me out. You know I'm having a housewarming this evening. I dare say they've arrived by now. But I left my uncle there. I just ran in, to receive the guests. And if you weren't a fool, a common fool, a perfect fool, if you were an original instead of a translation, you see, Rodia, I recognize you're a clever fellow, but you're a fool. And if you weren't a fool, you'd come round to me this evening instead of wearing out your boots in the street. Since you have gone out, there's no help for it. I'd give you a snug easy chair, my landlady has one, a cup of tea, company, or you could lie on the sofa. Anyway, you would be with us. Zosimov will be there, too. Will you come? No. Rubbish, Razumihin shouted, out of patience. How do you know? You can't answer for yourself. You don't know anything about it. Thousands of times I've fought tooth and nail with people and run back to them afterwards. One feels ashamed and goes back to a man. So remember, Pachinkov's house on the third story. Why, Mr. Razumihin, I do believe you'd let anybody beat you from sheer benevolence. Beat? Whom? Me? I'd twist his nose off at the mere idea. Pachinkov's house, 47, Babushkin's flat. I shall not come, Razumihin. Raskolnikov turned and walked away. I bet you will, Razumihin shouted after him. I refuse to know you if you don't. Stay. Hey, is Amyatov in there? Yes. Did you see him? Yes. Talk to him? Yes. What about... Confound you, don't tell me, then. Pachinkov's house, 47, Babushkin's flat, remember. Raskolnikov walked on and turned the corner into Sadovi Street. Razumihin looked after him thoughtfully. Then, with a wave of his hand, he went into the house, but stopped short on the stairs. Confound it, he went on almost aloud. He talked sensibly, but yet... I am a fool, as if madmen didn't talk sensibly. And this was just what Zosimov seemed afraid of. He struck his finger on his forehead. What if... How could I let him go off alone? He may drown himself. Ah, what a blunder. I can't. And he ran back to overtake Raskolnikov, 
but there was no trace of him. With a curse, he returned with rapid steps to the Palais de Cristal to question Zamyatov. Raskolnikov walked straight to X Bridge, stood in the middle, and leaning both elbows on the rail, stared into the distance. On parting with Razumihin, he felt so much weaker that he could scarcely reach this place. He longed to sit or lie down somewhere in the street. Bending over the water, he gazed mechanically at the last pink flush of the sunset, at the row of houses growing dark in the gathering twilight, at one distant attic window on the left bank, flashing as though on fire in the last rays of the setting sun, at the darkening water of the canal, and the water seemed to catch his attention. At last, red circles flashed before his eyes. The houses seemed moving. The passers-by, the canal banks, the carriages, all danced before his eyes. Suddenly, he started, saved again perhaps from swooning by an uncanny and hideous sight. He became aware of someone standing on the right side of him. He looked and saw a tall woman with a kerchief on her head, with a long, yellow, wasted face and red, sunken eyes. She was looking straight at him, but obviously she saw nothing and recognized no one. Suddenly, she leaned her right hand on the parapet, lifted her right leg over the railing, then her left, and threw herself into the canal. The filthy water parted and swallowed up its victim for a moment, but an instant later the drowning woman floated to the surface, moving slowly with the current, her head and legs in the water, her skirt inflated like a balloon over her back. "'A woman drowning! A woman drowning!' shouted dozens of voices. People ran up. Both banks were thronged with spectators." On the bridge, people crowded about Raskolnikov, pressing up behind him. "'Mercy on us! It's our Afrosinia!' a woman cried tearfully, close by. "'Mercy! Save her! Kind people, pull her out!' "'A boat! A boat!' was shouted in the crowd. But there was no need of a boat. A policeman ran down the steps to the canal, threw off his greatcoat and his boots, and rushed into the water. It was easy to reach her. She floated within a couple of yards from the steps. He caught hold of her clothes with his right hand, and with his left seized a pole which a comrade held out to him. The drowning woman was pulled out at once. They laid her on the granite pavement of the embankment. She soon recovered consciousness, raised her head, sat up, and began sneezing and coughing, stupidly wiping her wet dress with her hands. She said nothing. "'She's drunk herself out of her senses,' the same woman's voice wailed at her side. "'Out of her senses. The other day she tried to hang herself. We cut her down. I ran out to the shop just now, left my little girl to look after her, and here she's in trouble again. "'A neighbor, gentlemen, a neighbor. We live close by.' the second house from the end, see yonder. The crowd broke up. The police still remained round the woman. 
Someone mentioned the police station. Raskolnikov looked on with a strange sensation of indifference and apathy. He felt disgusted. No, that's loathsome. Water. It's not good enough, he muttered to himself. Nothing will come of it, he added. No use to wait. What about the police office? And why isn't Zamyatov at the police office? The police office is open till ten o'clock. He turned his back to the railing and looked about him. Very well, then, he said resolutely. He moved from the bridge and walked in the direction of the police office. His heart felt hollow and empty. He did not want to think. Even his depression had passed. There was not a trace now of the energy with which he had set out to make an end of it all. Complete apathy had succeeded to it. Well, it's a way out of it, he thought, walking slowly and listlessly along the canal bank. Anyway, I'll make an end, for I want to. But is it a way out? What does it matter? There'll be the square yard of space. Ha! But what an end! Is it really the end? Shall I tell them or not? Ah, damn! How tired I am! If I could find somewhere to sit or lie down soon! What I am most ashamed of is its being so stupid. But I don't care about that either. What idiotic ideas come into one's head! To reach the police office, he had to go straight forward and take the second turning to the left. It was only a few paces away. But at the first turning, he stopped and, after a minute's thought, turned into a side street and went two streets out of his way, possibly without any object, or possibly to delay a minute and gain time. He walked, looking at the ground. Suddenly, someone seemed to whisper in his ear. He lifted his head and saw that he was standing at the very gate of the house. He had not passed it. He had not been near it since that evening. An overwhelming, unaccountable prompting drew him on. He went into the house, passed through the gateway, then into the first entrance on the right, and began mounting the familiar staircase to the fourth story. The narrow, steep staircase was very dark. He stopped at each landing and looked round him with curiosity. On the first landing, the framework of the window had been taken out. That wasn't so then, he thought. Here was the flat on the second story, where Nikolai and Dmitri had been working. It's shut up and the door newly painted, so it's to let. Then the third story and the fourth. Here. He was perplexed to find the door of the flat wide open. There were men there. He could hear voices. He had not expected that. After brief hesitation, he mounted the last stairs and went into the flat. It, too, was being done up. There were workmen in it. This seemed to amaze him. He somehow fancied that he would find everything as he left it even, perhaps, the corpses in the same places on the floor. And now, bare walls, no furniture, 
It seemed strange. He walked to the window and sat down on the window sill. There were two workmen, both young fellows, but one much younger than the other. They were papering the walls with a new white paper covered with lilac flowers, instead of the old, dirty, yellow one. Raskolnikov, for some reason, felt horribly annoyed by this. He looked at the new paper with dislike, as though he felt sorry to have it all so changed. The workmen had obviously stayed beyond their time, and now they were hurriedly rolling up their paper and getting ready to go home. They took no notice of Raskolnikov's coming in. They were talking. Raskolnikov folded his arms and listened. "'She comes to me in the morning,' said the elder to the younger, "'very early, all dressed up. "'Why are you preening and prinking?' says I. "'I am ready to do anything to please you, Tiet Vasilyevich. "'That's a way of going on. "'And she dressed up a regular fashion book.' "'And what is a fashion book?' the younger one asked. "'He obviously regarded the other as an authority. "'A fashion book is a lot of pictures, colored and they come to the tailors here every Saturday, by post from abroad, to show folks how to dress, the male sex as well as the female. They're pictures. The gentlemen are generally wearing fur coats, and as for the ladies' fluffles, they're beyond anything you can fancy. There's nothing you can't find in Petersburg, the younger cried enthusiastically. Except father and mother, there's everything." "'Except them, there's everything to be found, my boy,' the elder declared sententiously. Raskolnikov got up and walked into the other room, where the strong box, the bed, and the chest of drawers had been. The room seemed to him very tiny without furniture in it. The paper was the same. The paper in the corner showed where the case of icons had stood. He looked at it and went to the window." The elder workman looked at him askance. "'What do you want?' he asked suddenly. Instead of answering, Raskolnikov went into the passage and pulled the bell. The same bell, the same cracked note. He rang it a second and a third time. He listened and remembered. The hideous and agonizingly fearful sensation he had felt then began to come back more and more vividly. He shuddered at every ring, and it gave him more and more satisfaction. "'Well, what do you want? Who are you?' the workman shouted, going out to him. Raskolnikov went inside again. "'I want to take a flat,' he said. "'I'm looking round.' "'It's not the time to look at rooms at night,' and you ought to come up with the porter. The floors have been washed. Will they be painted? Raskolnikov went on. Is there no blood? What blood? Why, the old woman and her sister were murdered here. There was a perfect pool there. But who are you? The workman cried, uneasy. Who am I? Yes. You want to know? Come to the police station. I'll tell you. The workman looked at him in amazement. It's time for us to go, 
We are late. Come along, Alyoshka. We must lock up, said the elder workman. Very well. Come along, said Raskolnikov indifferently, and going out first, he went slowly downstairs. Hey, porter, he cried in the gateway. At the entrance, several people were standing, staring at the passers-by. The two porters, a peasant woman, a man in a long coat, and a few others. Raskolnikov went straight up to them. "'What do you want?' asked one of the porters. "'Have you been to the police office?' "'I've just been there. What do you want?' "'Is it open?' "'Of course.' "'Is the assistant there?' He was there for a time. What do you want? Raskolnikov made no reply, but stood beside them, lost in thought. He's been to look at the flat, said the elder workman, coming forward. Which flat? Where we are at work. Why have you washed away the blood, says he. There has been a murder here, says he, and I've come to take it. And he began ringing at the bell all but broke it. Come to the police station, says he. I'll tell you everything there. He wouldn't leave us. The porter looked at Raskolnikov, frowning and perplexed. Who are you? he shouted as impressively as he could. I am Rodion Romanovich Raskolnikov, formerly a student. I live in Schill's house, not far from here. Flat number 14. Ask the porter. He knows me. Raskolnikov said all this in a lazy, dreamy voice, not turning around, but looking intently into the darkening street. Why have you been to the flat? To look at it. What is there to look at? Take him straight to the police station, the man in the long coat jerked in abruptly. Raskolnikov looked intently at him over his shoulder, and said in the same slow, lazy tone, "'Come along.' "'Yes, take him,' the man went on more confidently. "'Why was he going into that? What's in his mind, eh?' "'He's not drunk, but God knows what's the matter with him,' muttered the workman. "'But what do you want?' the porter shouted again, beginning to get angry in earnest." Why are you hanging about? You funk the police station, then? said Raskolnikov jeeringly. How funk it? Why are you hanging about? He's a rogue, shouted the peasant woman. Why waste time talking to him? cried the other porter, a huge peasant in a full open coat and with keys on his belt. Get along. He is a rogue, and no mistake. Get along and seizing Raskolnikov by the shoulder, he flung him into the street. He lurched forward, but recovered his footing, looked at the spectators in silence, and walked away. "'Strange man,' observed the workman. "'There are strange folks about nowadays,' said the woman. "'You should have taken him to the police station all the same,' said the man in the long coat. "'Better have nothing to do with him,' decided the big porter. A regular rogue. Just what he wants, you may be sure. But once take him up, you won't get rid of him. We know the sort. 
Shall I go there or not? thought Raskolnikov, standing in the middle of the thoroughfare at the crossroads. And he looked about him, as though expecting from someone a decisive word. But no sound came. All was dead and silent, like the stones on which he walked. Dead to him. To him alone. All at once, at the end of the street, two hundred yards away, in the gathering dusk, he saw a crowd and heard talk and shouts. In the middle of the crowd stood a carriage. A light gleamed in the middle of the street. What is it? Raskolnikov turned to the right and went up to the crowd. He seemed to clutch at everything and smiled coldly when he recognized it, for he had fully made up his mind to go to the police station and knew that it would all soon be over.' 